Uh, we're obviously in Numbers, which is oftentimes not the most exciting book. This is, uh, we're in Numbers chapter 22. This is oftentimes not, uh, this is one of my favorite stories in Numbers, uh, and I find it, every time I work through it, I find it more and more convicting. It's the story of Balaam, and I call it part one, because his story doesn't end until Numbers 31, where you really find out about his character a little bit more in the consequences he faced. And actually in Peter, they talk about Balaam. But Balaam, it always resonates with me because we uh, did kids programs. So years ago, uh, when Heather and I were in Fredericksburg, uh, and I say we, she did kids programs, I would build the set and wrangle kids on stage and into costumes. And then if they had some ridiculous role like dressing in a diaper, they threw me into that. No words, look like a fool. That's the, that's the role I fill. And so I was always big baby in place. But we did one called Donkey Tales, and we worked through all the donkeys in Scripture. And it was written by uh, a lady, Celeste Clydesdale, but it was a funny one. There's a song about Balaam. I would sing it to you, but uh, as Kelvin has let me know, I have zero rhythm. And uh, I get that genetically straight from my father. Um, and part of that is because Dutch people wear wooden shoes, and so it's really hard to dance in wooden shoes. So if you want to make fun of me about rhythm, i got a pair of wooden shoes I'd like to see you dance in, all right? So that's what we say, but we have no rhythm, but it, that story always resonates because the kids are singing these songs, and you know them, and uh, it's in my head. I'm, I'm, I'm almost ready to burst into song, but I have self-discipline. Um, I wouldn't do that. And so Balaam, <laughs> so Balaam <coughs> jumps out. And he's a fascinating, I put this word, it's fascinating yet tragic story. And here's why. Here is a man who's given connection to God that he ultimately spurns to gain wealth. Though, as you read through Numbers 22 through 24, that sometimes is hard to see. Because we don't quite grasp, sometimes just in the English translation, the emotions that are woven into it. But there's some key phrases that let you know how sinful he was. Here is the end of his character, and it's at his death. In Numbers 31, 8b, which we'll get to a little bit later down, it's when Israel goes to punish Moab and Midianites because God sends them to them, and they're killing a bunch of kings. There's a phrase in 31, 8b that says this, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. But at the end of 24, he goes home, or at least it seems he does. And so we realize that he comes back <coughs> and gets involved in the deception and the corruption of Israel. Uh, an even more complete picture is shared in 2 Peter 2.15, which says, which have forsaken the right way, or the righteous way, and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And we get a picture from Peter that tells us that Balaam, and, and I'm going to mention this, is not a prophet of God, because that's what we keep thinking he is because of the way it's interaction, but is actually a pagan occult leader that God ends up using because God is sovereign and he does what he wants. And that's actually one of the things you want to see in this story is that Balak, Balaam, and God seem to have a three-part conversation. It's the words of Balak and then the words of Balaam and the words of God. And in scriptures written perfectly, and so as Moses is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, what comes off is this idea that God's in control and God uses whomever he chooses in accomplishing his purpose. But there's also this immensely sad story of Balaam, who's being used by God, has an opportunity like a prophet of God 
to literally have the Holy Spirit speak to him, speak through him, and yet because of greed, because of <coughs> honor, because of temporal success, he spurns it all. Now, the most fascinating fact about Balaam, if you've known the story, is that his donkey talks. And then even more astonishing is he argues with her. And that it still blows my mind. You'd think he would have stopped talking the second he heard the donkey talk, but he literally argues with his donkey, which I don't know if many of you have. I, I have way too many dogs, and so I want to see who here is, is less wise than the Van Hovens. Uh, who here has four dogs? I knew there was somebody here that was a, a, fellow, a fellow cripple. But right now, how many dogs do you have? You have four. Have you had more than four dogs? Okay, so the Kellers want to beat the Van Hovens, and we, we bequeath you the victory. Heather and I have four dogs, and Heather blames me for it, and rightfully so, because when a kid wants a dog, I, I don't even like puppies even. I, I can't stand puppies because they chew things, and they're, they're not even grown up. But I'm a sucker for getting kids pets. And so we ended up with four dogs, So my daughter, Anison, wanted a husky. And so what we did is we got on a waiting list, and she's super picky. I'm like, they'll never breed one she likes. Never took two years, but then we ended up with a husky. Who here has ever had a husky? I am confident that this donkey was part husky. This, I have, this husky dog, like, literally, it feels like it's talking to you. And then huskies are perpetual teenagers because it's always talking back to you. That's basically how I view a husky. And so this dog is always mouthing off is basically what it's doing. And, and then uh, we put it in the garage the other day at night and she can handle the cold. That's the dog waking us up at 2 a.m. because she wants to sit at the top and not at the bottom. Either way, so I'm confident this donkey had husky in it, always talking back. But Balaam is, is a soothsayer from Mesopotamia. <clears throat> and I say that because he's not a prophet. He's a soothsayer. He is, he is a person who goes out and looks at nature and looks for omens and communicates. He's part of the occult. Now, he is used by God to bless God's people, though they don't hear about it or know about it until they get the Torah, till they get the law off of the pen of Moses and read it. They have no idea <coughs> that this is taking place at all. They have no idea, and, and we're going to see in 25, and uh, Bob will bring that to light, they're engaging and, and start engaging in wicked immorality and complaining while God is using an occult religious leader, a shaman, so to speak, to bless his people, even though that person would rather give a curse so he could make money. He's a heathen, blessed with contact with God, he has the Spirit of God come upon him, which is the experience like a true Old Testament prophet. He even stirs the wrath of his benefactor, Balak, in what is called a three-part dis discourse of Balak, Balaam, and God. But again, he ends, and the whole story in this part one ends with separation. Uh, 24, 25 says, And Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. So when we read these three chapters... <coughs> We come to the conclusion that yeah, Balaam went home to Mesopotamia, so think further north and right. If I'm looking at the map and I'm facing it, which I'm not, um, you're, you're, you're looking up 
And they're right in Moab in the center. They've just conquered this northern tribe here. And they've come back to across from Jericho. And he's in Mesopotamia up here, up in that northern region. And then Moab is down here. And I want us to think about something, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Israel has already bypassed Moab and Midian. They haven't done anything to them. And so keep that in mind as you think of Balak and his reaction. So here is Balaam. He's not a believer or even truly faithful to God's purpose, though this discourse displays loyalty. But the thought of his thinking, the heart behind what he thinks, was always self-centeredness. 2 Peter 2.16 says of him that it was the madness of the prophet. In other words, this guy, and again, the word prophet is not going back to a God's prophet, but instead a leader of the occult. He is crazy. He is consumed with this world. Yet Balaam should stop us and make us think hard about ourselves and about our families and about our world. Because I do believe we live among many Balaams. And his folly or his madness is far too easy to engage in right now. The danger for believers is to read the story of Balaam and think, what a nut. Who talks to a donkey? Who doesn't listen to God? Who doesn't follow through? And then just pause for a second and take a cross-section of the church in the United States. I go so far because I don't romanticize foreign countries because I've been in Nicaragua, and you just take a cross-section of the church in Nicaragua or Guatemala or India, and you look at the church today and just think about how many Balaams are there, people who have a very direct connect to God. They have his word. They use it. They talk about it. And yet they engage in the same madness and folly that Balaam does. It's easy to do. Because as we know, he dies in the punishment of Midian for idolatry and immorality perpetuated in and upon Israel. He thinks that he can find his way around God's purpose, the one he had lifted up in public oration. So here's a guy that's going to give four speeches for which he is going to be persecuted. He's going to have the wrath of Balak for those speeches. And yet, at the end, he returns to give them advice on how to destroy Israel, and that's to send the idolatry of their nations and to send the immorality of those nations to them, all because... He wants gain, honor, and temporal possibilities. And sadly, the thing he spurns is the connection to the holy, righteous, merciful, and gracious creator. He sells his soul to gain the world. He is the number one almost illustration of someone who sells their soul to gain the world, and it's a terrible thing. So we're going to turn our attention now to how Balaam gets connected to Balak and learn how easy it is to think we can get around God's purposes. And it all begins with what I call a situation and a suggestion. Because what we find in verses 1 through 6 of 22 is what starts it all. And I want you to realize who it is. And it's Balak. So look at verse 1. I'll start reading. <coughs> and if I start coughing, you just read silently and we'll get down to 6. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab. On this side, Jordan by Jericho, which remember, the Moabites become one of the early um, oppressors of Israel during the time of the judges, right? Eglon goes across, or Ehud, one of them, one of them kills one, right? Eglon dies, Ehud kills him, but it's right across Jericho. This is right where it all would begin. 
And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites north. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And notice what's coming up and what Satan will often use in the world to stir up, and it's fear. Um, And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are around about us, as the axe licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. In other words, he's grabbing (coughs) everyone's attention. He's stirring the pot and saying, We're going to die. Goes on, he sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pether, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land, for I wot that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. And I want you to see what we have here. Israel is where God had them. They've bypassed Moab. They're there ready to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land. Moab is staring in, and what does he want to do? <coughs> he wants someone to come curse them, because what does he want to do to them? Drive them out. He wants to do what he's afraid they're going to do to him. You've got a pagan king who is looking at them and saying, well, if I had that many people, what would I do? I'd wipe out everyone around me. Here's the reality. Israel has bypassed them, gone east of them, and is now right up here in Jericho, has conquered a, a group of people, the Amorites, higher up, and they've come down. Og of Bashan is further north, come back down, and he's building up a story in his mind that is not true. Israel's bypassed Moab. They're not planning on doing battle or taking territory there. Midian was connected with Moses. There's been no issues at all. Yet Balak saw how handily Israel had defeated the nations to the north, and so he begins surmising, they'll come for us next. Logic built on whose perspective? His, the world's. Well, if I was bigger, I'd kill them. They're bigger than me, so they must be coming to get me. And so he defines, decides to find someone that can curse the people, And I I want us to note something as we start the story. The situation is fear. He feels fear, and then he sells fear based on what he would do. If I was bigger, I'd wipe them out. So since they're bigger, they're going to wipe me out. He knows their story. Don't be shocked. He knows that God leads them. This is no, God is getting the glory as they move forward. And I put here as a question for us to think, what did Balak not do? What did he not do? What are some things he didn't, Tom? He didn't show hospitality. He didn't show hospitality, for sure. He could have. He could have let him go through, but they didn't let him do that. What else did he not do? I'm afraid of these people. They're going to kill me. What did he not do? He never sought out, that's my first answer, never sought out God's people. Never once, knowing they're God's people, and and understand this, everyone knows they're God's people. God has made that clear. No one is wondering about that. He never sought out God's people. What else? He didn't see God. 
He never, and that's my third one, he never sought the true God. We look at this fear that's building, and when I mention he builds his whole story, his whole situation comes from a worldly perspective, and he never seeks the people he's afraid of. He never goes to them and says, hey, I'm wondering, are you going to kill me? Are you going to wipe us out? What's your intent? Because it's interesting, they've bypassed him, and then he never acknowledged the truth about him. They're going to lick everything up. They're going to take everything away. They're going to destroy everything. That's not what they did. And then I put as the next question, what did Balak do? Oh, he built a group, right? And sought supernatural intervention. Here's a man looking for someone to curse Israel so that there'll be a spell on them so that he can come in and be destructive. In other words, he's not afraid of the supernatural. He's actually seeking it but he's seeking it in a destructive way. And I put, don't miss what fear does. And then don't miss how Satan can use fear. Instead of listening to the reality of what God has done and seeking him in the face of questions, fear galvanized Balak's rebellion against God. His fear just made rebellion stronger. His fear drove him to grow and instigate others to be afraid. Because what does he do to the Midianites? He approaches them, their elders, and says, look, they're going to eat everything up. Midianites were nomads. They didn't have land that needed to worry about. Their son-in-law, the Midianites, is Moses. He's convincing this people that already have a connection, that have never seen Israel do anything wrong, to go attack God's people. And so he searches for the agent of the enemy to come curse and attack. And so elders of Moab and Midian, they send a delegation to a well-known soothsayer. He is a man known, and I want you to realize that he's in Mesopotamia, and he is known in Moab as a man who can curse and can bless. Don't think for a second. I remember growing up thinking, man, he's not a believer. He's not a believer. How can he not be a believer? All this time he's been listening to God. He's not listening to God. This is an occult religious leader. He is engaged in the demonic. So much so and so successfully so that the world knows about him in that region. And they go to seek him. And through dark magic and omens, he's been able to summon answers and results. And now we need to pause and remove from our head that somehow... God's side hustle is Balaam. Thinking that God, who usually has been working through Moses, but has Balaam as a freelance prophet on the side. Balaam, as Irving Jensen writes, by profession was an augur, foretelling the future on the basis of omens or signs, which he would see from phenomena of nature. And it was a common heathen practice. And I, I say this because I've heard so many people over the years talk about Balaam, and they're just not sure who he is. He is a lost Satan worshiper almost, a cult leader, religious leader. For his first two oracles, Balaam even engaged in searching for omens and direction. This is nothing but what an occult prophet would do. <clears throat> it is his third oracle where it says he doesn't bother looking for omens, that he doesn't seek signs because he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And so what happens is the story now unfolds with an interchange of the three parties, Balak, Balaam, and God. 
with an obvious emphasis on God and his sovereign control over everything in the circumstance in life. And so I turn our attention now to what I call the setup. This is verses 7 through 35. This is, um, this is the bulk <coughs> of the lesson. I think some of the stuff that sits here uh, has probably one of the most troubling uh, thoughts for us. And it's, I'll say it up front, reconcile verse 20 with 22 in this. Because there's two statements that are hard sometimes to reconcile there. But <clears throat> what happens in verse 12 is we have the first solicitation by these elders. So they come in and they said, um, and, and they come and ask him, and, and it says in 12, And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And then 13, Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get ye into your land, for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. And then ask yourself a question. Was that exactly what God said? What did God exactly say to Balaam? You're not going to be able to curse them because they are, and they are, they're blessed. He didn't say you can't go with them. He says you're not going to curse them because they're, they're blessed people. You, you can't do anything. And so he doesn't tell them the truth. So they go back to Balak. This is all part of the process. This is bartering 101. Ah, uh, would you come do this? I like your coat. How much is your coat? Oh, you can't afford my coat. Oh, I got $50. I'll buy your coat. Ah, no, I never sell that for $50. And they turn their back, right? And you walk away. And someone says, well, I really want that coat. I'm only in this country for this one time. I, I want the coat. In other words, they go back and now more important people come. Solicitation part two. And so Balak goes back to God, and God says, yes, it seems. And so look at verse 20. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, thou sh that shalt thou do. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. And then verse 22, and just look at your own Bible and read it. What does it say? And God's anger was kindled because he went. And the words he went in Hebrew imply more than they would from the Septuagint. So if you're translating this and he went, and, and this is the beauty of Hebrew and the difficulty of translating it. Because in Hebrew, he went implies how he went. And, and, and if you're reading this in Hebrew, you're reading, and God's anger was kindled because he went a certain way or with a certain attitude. His disposition in his leaving was perverse. It was off. And so, because he went is rendered better what I just said. But I think that 20 through 22 carry a very weighty lesson for us. There's lessons to learn here. And, and I just want to pause for a second. How many times have you heard this? I think this is God's will. I've heard this more times than I want to count. I have peace. It's God's will. And then I'm listening, and I don't know if this ever happened to you, and if it hasn't, okay. Um, and I'm thinking, I don't know how that's God's will. I'm, I'm, but how do you answer someone who says, well, this is God's will for my life? <coughs> and it... Yeah. 
And why did Balaam go back? Yeah, and why did Balaam go back? What does he want? He wants his heart's wrong. But now let's be real because we, we, we do this. I, I see this in my own life. It's so convenient <coughs> to say, I have peace. It's God's will. And I put a question Is it? That's the conflict. That's what I mean. Reconciling verse 20 with 22. God says to him, Go ahead and go. And then God is angry because he went. And this is the pause for believers that we need to stop on if you're looking at Balaam. And I want you to think about this for a second. How many times do we say, I have peace, this is God's will, this is what God wants. And I'm not trying to suddenly remove peace from your heart, so that's not my goal. I want us to realize something about ourselves that we can learn in Balaam. Because we can convince ourselves that we're doing God's will. We can tell other believers we are and it can look like we are. But I want you to read 20 again and think about how dangerous your heart's disposition can be. What did God give him permission to do? <laughs> yeah, he gave him permission to do it and that brought the wrath of God on him. And that should be the weightiest part of Balaam's story for a believer in a sense of, God, it's in his grand plan, right? Did God accomplish his purpose? Well, we know he does. I'm going to read, a, uh, later on, I'm going to read from a commentator that I thought was hilarious, and he compares Balaam to the donkey. And he, and he says, yeah, he ended up getting to be the donkey in Balak's camp because he's going to say what God wants, and it didn't go over that well. But he got to be the mouthpiece there because he's going to be used. But I want us to feel the weight because he's given verbal permission but he has a corrupt heart and it incurred the wrath of God and I'm going to say this right now if you're waiting for this profound statement where I'm going to link the two perfectly just stop waiting it's not going to happen but you do need to wrestle with the reality of what just unfolded Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, and it doesn't fall outside of God's plan, and we see God giving permission, right? Our first instinct is, wait a second, God said yes. Then how many people you know, and I think just connect to believers, well, God told me, i got a clear yes from God about this. And I'm, I'm gonna, I want to tie to something, and this is the, the point for me on this. Where's your heart? Because you might know or think or hear yes, but when you have a corrupt heart, then you have no idea what you're discerning. Go down to um, verse 34, and I'm going to read this. So after God shows him the angel, he says this, And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeased thee, I will get me back again. Yeah. However, notice what he didn't say. 
you said I could go. Not a single part of the text, when Balaam is confronted, when he sees the angel, he never turns to the angel and says, but he said I could go. Because he recognizes where his heart is. Sadly, Balaam never repents. He acknowledges, and this is shocking, that he sinned, but he never repents. He never turns from his sin. There's no change in him, but he acknowledges something's wrong there. And I, I mention that because our first inclination, and if, I'm, if you're being honest with yourself, you know it's there. When you read verse 20 and you read verse 22, you think God's not fair. He said yes, and he got mad for him doing it. That's not fair. That's not right. But who is always fair and just and right? That's the standard, right? That's our absolute. We know that. So then we read this and we say, well, it doesn't seem like it's fair. What does that tell us? Our hearts are wrong. We've got the wrong viewpoint. And, and, and my encouragement of the action step as we look at this setup and we're going to work through the donkey talking in a little bit is this. Be careful how quickly you want to make yourself feel okay because you're confident it's in God's will. Examine yourself. Paul says to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I'm going to say to believers, examine yourself to see where your heart is in the matter. Because we'll be shocked by the corruption we see in our heart as we approach a decision because we feel fine about it. And, and, and as Bob mentioned, he already knew what the answer was. Why is he asking again? Well, we think God will change, that God's one of the demons, that God can be moved, and, and all these things. But then also think about this. He, he knew these people would be blessed. He knows this guy wants him to curse him. But God gives him permission, but it's a corruption or perversion that rests in his heart. <coughs> so, fascinatingly, we're going to watch the journey of Balaam because you can't pass up the story without being on the, on the journey with him where God allows his donkey to see the angel of the Lord standing with a drawn sword. And then the donkey speaks after being beaten three times. Balaam argues, showing us something about him. And I put the word stubbornness. That he would be that persistent that literally a donkey would talk and he would argue with a donkey. It says this. This is the third beating. He hit him with a staff, it says, because... He scraped his foot, he ran into a field, and then he reached a point where he cannot go either way, and so the donkey sits down. And Balaam is burned up, and he gets his staff now, and starts beating the donkey. And then in that process, it says in 28, the Lord opens the mouth of the, of the donkey, and she said unto Balaam, and I don't know why it has to be a girl donkey, but apparently it does. It's a lady telling this fool what to do, right? This, and one commentator called him a numbskull. And this is going way back into the 60s. This is who this guy is. And she says, what have I done to you that thou smited me these three times? And Balaam said unto the donkey, because thou hast mocked me. Because you've made me look stupid, basically. I would there, I, I would, there were a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. I wish that I could stab you to death right now. This is his response to a talking donkey. And the donkey said unto Balaam, am, am I not thine donkey, which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever want to do this unto thee? Did I ever do this? <coughs> and he said, no. He is literally arguing with the donkey. The donkey brings logic to the table, and he acknowledges that the donkey's right. 
This should be a low point in his life. Here's the kicker. Guess what he doesn't know? He still hasn't picked up on it. <clears throat> and he doesn't know anything. Guess when he finally, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. When should he have fallen flat on his face? Definitely when the donkey spoke. I just think, wow, when should he really fall on his face? First time the people came and God spoke to him. And that's something we miss because God spoke to him directly on solicitation number one and he didn't fall on his face then. And then God spoke to him again, he didn't do it again. And then a donkey talked to him and he didn't do it again. And I wanted to build the evidence against Balaam and it's a wave of evidence come. Now he sees this angel and the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine donkey these three times? Why did you beat your do donkey? Behold, I went out to withstand thee because thy way is perverse before me. And now you know where his mind is. This is where his heart. His heart was perverse. He's justified himself. And that's the word we use. We make ourselves right. Justified. He says, you're perverse. Crooked, twisted, wrong. That's who you are. And that's why I'm against you. And the donkey saw me and turned from me these three times. Basically, if she had not turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee. And this is what I love. What does the angel Lord tell him? I would have killed you and made sure she was alive. She lives, you die without her doing what she did. And that's when Balaam says in 34. But Balaam only submits upon seeing the angel with a sword. Nothing before that. And it tells us a lot about where his heart is. And then I put this question, because I think this is what, if we're going to grab Balaam's story and understand it, how unbiblically stubborn are we? <coughs> we're astonished by a man that doesn't get it even while talking to his donkey, yet how clear have things been made to us, and we still find a way to muddy the waters. That blows my mind. It's one of the reasons I keep saying from the pulpit over and over again, and you can't beat the drum all year long, but read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible for yourself. Read your Bible for yourself. Because the interesting thing is, and I think it's critical to be at worship. I think it's critical to have the right mindset of worship. Obviously, last week's sermon dealt with this idea that we're not to disdain worship. Jesus is running out the people who have polluted worship. But here's the reality. When you show up to worship on Sunday and you spend an hour, hour and 15, hour and a half, two hours if you come to ABF or Sunday school, you could zone out in two hours. You could fall asleep. You could be not paying attention. Your life has to be permeated in, in God's word. And here's the critical thing. Because if it's not, you will muddy the waters. That's what he did. Because it's clear as glass. It's right there. When you read his word, it's, it's obvious what he wants. But what do we do so we don't have to do what God wants? little mud in the water. And then things seem murky or I don't know what I need to do or I have a thousand different explanations. I had a conversation with someone and, and literally it was just fascinating me because they said something and I said, yep, that's great. That's fine if you're looking like this. If the world is your view, that's fine. But lift your head up just one second and you tell me if that works when you're standing before God. 
But I'm not the one that needs to come tell you because you don't need to listen to me at all. That's not my job, nor is it something I'm even supposed to do in that sense. But I can tell you what God's word says, and you can't argue with that. And that's something that we, we probably need to spend more time doing because I know I'm a justifier. I, I find a way to prove my point. I could have been a lawyer. Heather says, you should have been a lawyer. Then you can get all this stupid arguing out in court and you could have come home and been normal, right? <laughs> that would have worked out fine. My oldest son, he wanted to be, in, he was almost thinking law. I'm like, it would work. And then you can argue and argue and argue and then come home and then maybe not, not have, you know, have an idea about everything, you know, sometimes. But, but the fact of the matter is this, we muddy the waters. But if you lift your head up for a second, it's all clear. If Balaam would have looked up from the money and the honor and the, the rapport that's coming from two kingdoms, think about who's coming to the table here. This is, let's just pretend this is Spain and England sending their sons to you. Sending their Congress or their Parliament to your door and saying, please come and curse these people because then maybe we can knock them out. That's what this is. This is that much prestige at the door. It would be hard to overcome this. We kind of make him into this, this kind of dummy that doesn't listen to a donkey. But what we forget is that there's a delegation from two nations saying, we want you. You're the only solution for our problem. And we will honor you. You will be the statue in every city. You will be carried. You don't need a donkey anymore. We'll carry you around. We're going to dump wealth on you. This guy had everything in front of him, but he would have known exactly what to do if he would have bothered to look up. And in life, we will know what to do if we bother to look up. If you look at those verses 30, and I said I read it 30 through 35, there's a couple things that we need to notice. Notice reality. <laughs> Balaam makes no excuses or justification when he's talking to the angel of the Lord. Never once does he say, you told me I could go. Well, the donkey should have talked to me earlier. That would have been easier. Why didn't she talk to me the first time she saw the angel? Why did she wait to the third time? Notice reality. There are no excuses or justifications. And then notice reaction. There is no more jockeying for position. What does he say in 34? I've sinned, and if it displeased thee, I will get back again. In other words, if you're saying go back, I'm heading back now. I'm walking from this immediately. But God has given <coughs> the sovereignty. But here's the, the thing. You don't ever give God the sovereignty. That's the mistake we make as believers. Oh, God is sovereign. You know, he will accomplish his will. He is sovereign. Whether you admit to it or not, whether our world admits to it or not, whether our president, whether the Congress, whether the Senate, whether the world, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what it looks like they're getting away with. It doesn't matter that the evil succeed and it seems like they're going to oppress and overtake. God is sovereign. And <coughs> our role as humans is to recognize that without exception. That's when we are prepared to serve him and to function as we should. Notice reality and notice the reaction. So, and I'm sure I'm running out of time. I'm definitely running out of time. So I'm going to move quickly to speeches. So let's just fast forward. Balaam arrives in Moab. He's hired to curse a people. 
He's there to curse people. He showed up after a long trip with all the wealth, all the things. And this is Gordon Wenham's quote. He made a fitting comparison with Balaam and his donkey. And I want us to get this because one of the takeaways is understanding who God is. As God opens the donkey's mouth, so he will put his words in Balaam's to declare his will. God can use anyone to be a spokesman. And that works when we think about our limitations as believers, as we stand and sometimes we say, I don't know if I can ever share the gospel or I can reach these people or I can be eloquent enough or I can dive in. And we realize that God uses his children to share his gospel, that we are his ambassador. That's the, the positive side of that. But understand this when it comes to God's sovereignty. If he can have a donkey talk, he can make anyone say whatever he wants and do what he wants. He's not thwarted at all. And so this pagan soothsayer starts his rituals. And I want us to realize this and read through this when you get a chance. The first two oracles, he starts with the seven sacrifices and him going off and he's looking for something to happen. By the time he gets to the end, 24 verse 1, it says, And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. <coughs> and Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. In other words, the first two times he's looking for his omens, he's looking for the wind to blow, he's looking for all the nuances and cadence that he looked before. He's looking for demons to indicate where and what should happen. He's looking for who he worshipped before still. He's still off, but by the third oracle, he's not doing that anymore. And he gives these speeches, and, and I want to walk through them quickly. They run the gamut of blessings from being innumerable and unique to being connected to the one true God who cannot be stopped and was brought them forth from Egypt, a people who will be victorious. He reiterates the Abrahamic blessing of Genesis 12, 3. I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curses thee. His final speech, number four, which he doesn't do any sacrifice. It's like a bonus message for Balak. He points to David and clearly beyond David to Jesus Christ, verse 24, 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheph. <coughs> and there's no doubt that a, uh, David partially fulfills that, and there's no doubt that ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And, but you can't really, it's one of those prophecies that has has a, a forward, it's a, it's a two-point application. A lot of prophecies that way. It's one of the hardest things about prophecy is that there's, when I say not partial fulfillment, but there's fulfillment, but the fullest fulfillment is, is beyond that. And you see that as you go through Zechariah, you're going through uh, Haggai, all those books that tie in there, you see a lot of that double-parted. And that's, this is one of them right here. That they know that it points forward to that. And so 24, 25, I've already read it. Two pagans split ways. Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. But I want to remind us of the sad return of Balaam. He advises Balak and the other elders, and that's the only indication we have is that he died with them, and he pays with his life, and he pays eternally. They killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. That's 31.8b, the first part of it. I didn't read it because there's a lot of names that I'll have to try to pronounce when I get to that, so I'll just save it for that time. All kings of Midian and Moab that all die. And so the life of Balaam ends, 
And I want us to see what he's missed. A man given amazing knowledge of God. Think about this. Amazing interaction with God. On oracle number three, it says the Spirit of God comes upon him and gives him it. Yet a man that ultimately served himself, a man that did not believe, though the evidence and experiences were abundant. And I hope it's a caution to us. I hope it's a wake-up call. I hope it's a reminder of wasted connection and opportunity. And I'm going to quote what I quoted on Sunday as Jesus spoke toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And I hope you can close your eyes and you can picture Balaam. Because he's going to be one of those people that say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And that word there for wonderful works signifies miracles. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And I call that the hardest verses in Scripture. To read, to think about, to process. It's not easy. It's, it's painful even. And I say go all the way back to Balaam. And you want to have a picture perfect of what those verses are talking about? That's him. And then if we stop there, we make a huge error because what we need to do is look out and recognize that Balaam is running all over the place. He's running through the church because we have a ton of people who know and have given undescribable connection and interaction with God. During this age of grace, we are, as Christians, ambassadors of what? Of who? So everybody we bump into has been given and should be given an amazing interaction, right? So we look at what has been spurned. And so when you read the story of Balaam, I hope you can always read it uh, with the mindset of understanding how tragic is the story, how sad is it. And then remember 20... He gets a verbal permission to do something that incurs the wrath of God. And I just say this, don't be cavalier about what God's will is, but instead be serious. And as you look at God's will, recognize that you need to get into your heart, examine your heart, and understand where you are. Because at the end of it, what does the angel Lord said? You're perverse. Your heart's twisted and it's crooked and it's off. And let's be careful how cavalierly we just throw out I think it's God's will to do this I would say this and I wish I could say it to people sometimes but I don't want to be I don't think there's any benefit in being obnoxious and that's not the right opportunity oftentimes to say this don't think you know God's will you better make sure you know you know God's will and you cannot know God's will unless your heart's not perverse or twisted or off so examine your heart and deal with it. And every time we come to this, hit the story of Balaam, let his caution be a, uh, not a, say a red flag, I'm not saying stop, but let it be the caution it's supposed to be. He's given a lot of territory in Numbers. Numbers is about entering the promised land, and we just heard about this event. It takes three chapters, and he shows up later on, he shows up in the New Testament, and God never gives that much territory in his word unless it's there for a reason. And Balaam, I think, is one of the cautionary tales that should be 
running through our mind as we approach how we serve our Lord, what we do, and understanding his purpose and his will. Uh, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Hey, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. Help us to, to be convicted with Balaam. I know for myself, as I look at his response and I look at the permission <coughs> and the, the fact that he claimed that permission and that while doing what he assumed he had permission to do is incurring your wrath, that in his situation, an angel of the Lord was coming to to kill him because he was perverse of heart. I hope that as your children, uh, we are diligent in examining our hearts. As we look at your will and your purpose, that we pray, that we seek to have hearts that are aligned. The word perverse is crooked and twisted. And so it's, it's out of line with what you want, but make sure that we truly are lined up, that our, that our attitude is lined up. That's the heart attitude he went out with that was wrong. And that we'll get that right as we seek your will and have the peace about what is next and what the right decision is. In your precious and holy name, amen.